Let's hear the word of the Lord again this morning. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go before him in prayer. At this time, O oh Lord, we once again seek your great blessing upon us as we hear your word so that, Father, we might hear your grace, be restored and renewed by it, and then serve you more faithfully throughout this entire world, we pray. Make it a reality here as we begin to hear anew you speak to us through the scripture we ask. In your son's name, amen. If you will, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And I hope while I read this passage, you caught the thrust of the text. You walk into a room, uh, you're supposed to meet some friends there and stuff like that, and as you walk into the room, suddenly you see there's this huge, this massive elephant standing right smack in the middle of the room. And there's this elephant in the room, and you, you walk in and your mind kind of goes numb because you're sitting there thinking, Here's this massive elephant in the middle of the room, and all your friends are milling around and stuff like that, and there's this elephant standing there, and you can't get your mind wrapped around it, and so you eventually make your way over to your friends, and you start talking with them and stuff like that, and they're kind of acknowledging the elephant, but not really. They're talking about other things, and, and as a matter of fact, you can tell that they're talking about some very serious issues, but you can't you can't pay much attention to it. You don't really know what they're talking about because there's this big elephant in the middle of the room and you can't pay any attention to anything because your mind keeps cycling right around the big elephant today is the whole idea of slavery. I hope you were paying attention when I read the passage. I read the passage with the ESV's translation of bond servants, but we could have easily read that passage exactly as is translated in other translations, let all who are under the yoke as slaves react a certain way. This text is about slavery. And certainly one of the massive elephants that we have to deal with right off the bat is why are we talking about this? Okay, sure, it's in God's word and we preach God's word and it's right there in the text and so we are dependent and responsible to touch on it if it's in the text. But why are we talking about, why are we going to spend, I mean, these are two verses. We could have just read them, incorporated them in something else and then just moved right on because let's face it, I'm not quite sure how relevant the whole discussion of slavery is for us. Most of us are not going to find ourselves in that situation touching upon it very exactly. And so why are we going to spend this kind of time talking about slavery? Well, a couple things come to mind. The first is this. As all of you know, our society continues to deal with the ramifications of our own history with slavery. And the church took a major part, both in the institution of slavery historically here in the United States and also in its eradication. And unfortunately, we continue in our race relations and with our interactions with our history and the way in which we deal and function as a society, we continue to deal with the question 
of slavery. So it is relevant on that regard, but even more so. And unfortunately, I don't have the time here to speak with you all or to educate all of us as much as we should of the ongoing modern struggle that our world has with slavery. Over 40 million, a conservative estimate, over 40 million people, that's about one in 150, so one out of the group here, over 40 million people are actively caught in forced labor situations, a bonded labor situation, or sex trafficking. 40 million people. And that's with a recognition that slavery legally is outlawed across this entire world. And yet still, one in every 150 people, 40 million are caught in slavery. If indeed this is a question of justice, of righteousness, of holiness, if indeed our Lord hates with an abomination the whole idea of slavery, then it's an issue that the church, this church, and you as an individual should be a lot more knowledgeable on than what you are. I'd encourage you to take just a few minutes sometime this week and educate yourself. Why? Because our first tool, and historically evidenced the first tool in eradicating slavery is our prayers. And you and we will only do that faithfully if we are educated. So I encourage you, please, modern slavery is something that concerns us, and so it takes us to this text. But that's not the really big elephant. The really big elephant, when you're reading the Bible, is if slavery is such an abomination, if it is such a uh, abhorrent to our God, if it does run counter to everything in which we understand of the gospel message that is covered from the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, why is it that sometimes, oftentimes, it seems like the Bible not just fails to condemn slavery, but actually appears at spots to condone it? I hope you were reading along while I read the passage or you were listening. Here Paul addresses the slaves and he says nothing about the evils of slavery. He says nothing about their sworn duty to free themselves. He says nothing about how wicked and horrific the slave owners are. Rather, he talks to the slaves like they should, I don't know, what, embrace their lot? And that's not the only text that speaks this way. Now, certainly it's the case that throughout church history, the church has been far from aggressive at stamping out slavery. Uh, Again, in American history, You can read of the culpability of the church all too often, leaning on texts like this one. We're not here to talk about history. We're here to talk about the scripture and to hear God speak to us through the scripture. And it's hard not to read this text and see a huge elephant in the room. And if we don't talk about it, if we don't clarify the elephant, then it's going to be hard-pressed to hear anything else. 
Well, a couple things. Stealing a little bit, if I can, from Martin Luther King, the arc of biblical history bends towards justice. It's a long arc. It takes a long time, but it bends towards justice. The arc of human history bends towards freedom. The overarching theme of the scriptures, the overlying principles that are embedded within the text as a whole, I think lead to and has led to through the years Christians being at the forefront of the emancipation movement of eradicating slavery. And that because of the scriptures, because built, embedded deep within the scriptures is the understanding that we are created in the image of God, that there is a biblical and a repeated condemnation of the slave trade as being something that is outside God's will and God's design, that in the scriptures are established some legal protection for slaves, which is something that had never been seen and never recognized in any society before that there is the radical reordering of the relationships that exist between human beings when the gospel comes upon us, that we become ultimately a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a family together. And built into that family is the notion, is built into the assumptions that anything that borders on slavery simply is wrong, is abhorrent to that. Of course, there is the ultimate understanding that mutually we stand before a God who makes it clear over and over again that he will not show favoritism. So I think that you can easily demonstrate both biblically and also through the history that the arc of biblical history, the narrative of the scriptures as whole, ultimately bend towards, lead us towards the idea of a freedom of the slaves. But what do you do with texts like this one that sure don't seem to sound that way? And again, this is not a random text. Paul reiterates very similar comments in Colossians, in Ephesians, in Galatians. Even while in the midst of those books, he is also promoting and pushing the idea of freedom in Christ and the impact that that freedom in Christ might have on a slave's perpetual existence. But of course what we're doing here today is we're looking at this passage, this particular text, and we're seeking God in the midst of it. So having, I hope, acknowledged the elephant in the room, let's take a look at this text. Okay, in chapter 6, verse 1, right off the bat, Paul writes this, let all who are under the yoke as bondservants. He uses the term bondservants, the scripture does here, and that is a a term that does indeed specify and and identify somebody that we would understand being held in slavery. Now, the American version of slavery, the chattel slavery, the racially based slavery uh, that we all experience and that we, we all have some history with and understanding of, That was slightly different than the kind of slavery that was practiced during the Roman Empire. But nevertheless, you were looking at a Roman Empire where about one-third of the people, one-third of the entire population were slaves. And it was not, again, the, the brutality necessarily, the brutality that we associate with American slavery. But make no mistake, it was slavery. 
But Paul uses the term bondservants here, and the term is a broader context. Yes, it, it, it identifies anybody who would be in a physical slavery-type position, but it also references anybody that would be in a position of servitude, any, any kind of a servant, uh, any type of somebody that would be doing menial labor or be doing menial work around the house or anything along those lines, not just somebody that would be owned like property, although that was popular at that time, but also anybody that would uh, identify themselves as a servant. Having said that, when Paul speaks about them, he says, all those who are under the yoke as bond servants. And so while the term is broader than just slaves, when he uses that term yoke, it's hard not to identify it specifically as those who are in what we would classically understand as a position of slavery. Why? A yoke is that thing that you put over farm animals. It is a, it is a specific term that except for when it is being used as an analogy by our Lord, specifically identifies its work with animals. And uh, the identification of the labor and the brutality that goes along with an animal and with the work of an animal. And so here I think it's very clear that Paul has in mind a slave, somebody who is owned by another and whose work is forced labor for somebody else's benefit. Now what, do we, what is Paul saying? Speak, incidentally, note this about this text. This text is addressed to the slaves. And you want to know what Paul says to the slave owners. I direct you to other parts of the scripture, like Philemon and other passages. Because when we seek to understand the biblical notion, the biblical understanding and teaching upon slavery as a whole, we have to take the entirety of the text, the entirety of the scriptures to understand that. But what we're doing here is looking specifically at what Paul says to those who are slaves. And what does he say? Regard your own masters as worthy of honor. Now, if you look in verse 2, it's really clear that in verse 2, Paul is talking to slaves whose owners are Christians. And so it's also equally clear, I think, from implication that in verse 1, he's talking to slaves whose owners are not Christians. So how are you supposed to react if you are a slave and your owner is not a Christian? This is what Paul says. Regard them, regard your masters as worthy of all honor. Not the Christian owners, the non-Christian owners. Regard them as worthy of all honor. Now, we have talked about honor numerous times in the book of Timothy. And consistently in the book of Timothy, honor here implies in part the respect the, the honor, the, the blessings that someone is due. And yet notice how Paul phrases this. Regard them as worthy of honor. I think the implication here is crystal clear for the slave. Don't honor your master if they are worthy of honor. But regard them as though they are if they are or not. In other words, what Paul is saying to people who are in slavery, treat your masters with honor even if they don't deserve it. Now, I hope that every bone in your body 
right now is reacting negatively to this. Okay, Paul, if you have to say that, and maybe there's a reason to say that, but if you have to say that, could your next sentence be some kind of a blanket condemnation about the evils of slavery? Could your next sentence please address the other side of the coin? Instead, what Paul does here is he gives a reason why Christian slaves should treat non-Christian masters as though they are worthy of respect. What does he say here? The end of verse 1. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Paul has two ideas here. Two goals Two focuses. That the name of God might be held forward, might be lifted up, might not be maligned. That the character of God might not be smeared and besmirched by the way the Christian slaves are acting. And that the teaching, what teaching are we talking about here? The message of the gospel. That the message of the gospel might go forward. At the core, what Paul is bringing up for us and reminding us here is that the Bible teaches us how to live faithfully in sinful situations. Wouldn't it be great as soon as you became a Christian God worked and removed you from any sinful situation, that you were never in any sinful situation at all. And God said, look, once you get in that perfect world, this is how you're supposed to live. But the Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible rather tells us, look, this is how you live in these sinful, broken situations. And so that biblical truth comes forward to us that biblical instruction does not mean biblical approval. Biblical instruction on an issue does not mean biblical approval. We have biblical instruction on how divorce is supposed to happen. We have biblical instruction on how wars are supposed to be fought. We have biblical instruction on how poverty is supposed to be handled. And in every one of those situations, they are outside of God's design and plan for this world. Biblical instruction does not mean biblical approval but it is biblical instruction for us how we are supposed to live our lives in the midst of a broken situation. Why? So that God's name may not be reviled. So that God's message may not be reviled. Look at how you're supposed to react to a believing master. This is a fellow Christian who nevertheless holds you in slavery Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. In other words, slaves, just because this person is now your brother in Christ, don't treat him with less respect. Don't say, look, there's no reason why you should be holding me in slavery. You're my brother, therefore I can treat you with less respect because you're doing this abhorrent thing. Rather, Paul says, serve all the better since the one who's benefiting from your service is a believer and beloved to you. Can you imagine this kind of instruction? 
But this is how you live faithfully in the midst of a sinful, broken world. Now, should the church be on the forefront of eradicating the ills of this world? Should we be advancing the cause of righteousness and justice and holiness in this world? Of course we should. Of course we must. But the consistent scriptural witness is not that when God calls you as a believer, he takes you out of the sinful situation. The biblical message is when God calls you as a believer, you are often left in a very miserable, sinful, broken situation. And thus we need to live our lives so that God's name and his message would not be reviled. So back to the elephant. Why do we have this teaching? Uh, Again, uh, aside from the fact that most of us are touched by the powers of modern-day slavery much more so than what we acknowledge, and again, I hope that if you go and spend a little bit of time looking and reading and self-educating about modern slavery, you will see that we are impacted by that. But aside from that, why are we given this text? Well, I want to do something here that I don't want to be misunderstood about. I want to not draw a parallel. What I want to say is I think that there are principles that Paul talks about here for those who are in slavery that apply in other areas of life. I am not equating uh, the life of marriage or, or the life of a family member or the life as a worker with slavery. I am not diminishing or trivializing slavery in such a way. But it is true that the Christian life is a life of servitude. From beginning to end, if you are a Christian, you are a servant. We use those terms, we toss that around, but when we identify it with a bondservant, when we identify ourselves with a slave, we realize that that service that I give as a Christian is just not those couple of times a week where I do something good or a couple times a week where I go outside myself to benefit somebody else or to help the church or something like that. But our entire life is a life of servitude. If you are married or have been married, think for a second of what it means that you are a servant in marriage. You know this to be true. You know it to be true that you must regard your owner, you must regard your spouse as though they are worthy of honor. Not that they are, but you will regard them that way. Why? So the name of Christ might not be reviled, so the gospel message would be lifted up. All of you are members of a family in one way or another, and you know that as a family, we give of ourselves completely and totally in servitude for the other. Not a little bit, but completely. And to do so, we do so so that the name of God may be lifted up and held high. That if you work, 
and your boss is a grump ball and he's a wicked person and he's terrible. Your job as a Christian is to treat him as though he is worthy of honor, if he is or if he isn't. And if he is a brother in Christ, you don't take advantage of that. That doesn't diminish your responsibilities to give of yourself so completely and totally towards their benefit. If your spouse happens to be a believer, that doesn't lessen your servitude towards her. If your family members are Christians, it doesn't mean that you work less for God's glory. And of course, all of this is predicated on one thing and one thing alone. That Christ himself took on the form of a servant. Sorry. He took on the form of a slave. And his slave service led him straight to the cross. Because he gave up his own will so that he would follow his father's will. And that led to the cross. And so well might your servitude but that's what it means that every one of us are slaves to righteousness. That's what it means that we are passionate about a Lord who made himself a slave, who did everything as a slave so that the name of God would not be reviled and so that the message of the salvation of Jesus Christ would be spread throughout the world. I pray this week that at least one time you get a chance to really and truly act as a slave for the furthering of God's kingdom. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we are struck by your word as we always are. The power of your text to speak into our lives, even when it speaks of something as so remote as slavery, than to recognize our ongoing responsibility in this world, our ongoing opportunities in this world to demonstrate your, your justice, your mercy, your righteousness, and your name, lifting that up so that all might see, so that every tongue would confess, every knee would bow before Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.